Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 40. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher from Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life at the School, I sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I sit down with Desi Demova. Desi is a biology teacher at Barnegat High School in Barnegat, New Jersey. Desi is very involved in the AP Biology community, both through attending the AP Biology Read and through her involvement in the AP Biology discussions on both Facebook's National AP Biology Teacher Group and the College board AP Biology teacher community. Before teaching, Desi was a research scientist. She earned her PhD in molecular biology from Cornell University. She has worked in a variety of lab settings, including the National Academy of Medicine in Bulgaria, the New York University Medical Center, the Sloan Kettering Institute for Cancer Research, Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center, and the Harvard Medical School. She also was a principal investigator and had her own research group at the Department of Molecular Biology and Biochemistry at Rutgers University. Her research has been centered on understanding transcriptional and epigenetic control mechanisms mechanisms as they relate to cell division and cancer using such models as yeast, fruit flies, and human cells. She has also authored research papers and review articles. Welcome, Desi. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's good to talk to you on a, a wintry Saturday morning here where we don't have any conflicts, which is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> no sports activities today. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we, uh, it's funny, like uh, we were talking before getting on that uh, I always like to do a little internet stalking of, of my guests. And when I was doing it for you, I had the thought of what you said to me on uh, the floor of the exhibition hall in St. Louis, which is, oh, there's nothing special about me. Like, why would you want to interview me? And uh, as I was doing that, reading all of your journal articles and all of your research experience. <laughs> so uh, this is going to be interesting interesting to see if I can pull out that you talking about the, the, the specialness of your background before you got into the classroom. <laughs> well, it's, it, that's because um, I'm a teacher now. I'm no longer a research scientist. So there's nothing special about me as a teacher. <laughs> I often feel like I'm an imposter uh, when I talk to other teachers. Well, I think uh, I, this is relatively new for me. <laughs> Well, it's interesting that you would say that because I think that on the other side, as somebody who has been, you know, always a teacher who like has to find my way into, you know, those those research venues, um, I would say I equally feel like an imposter when I have to, you know, bring my kids to, you know, some event or I talk to somebody at. Um, I was thinking, you know, you have Harvard Medical School, and um, we didn't talk about this before, but um, I have a partnership with some people at Harvard, and um, I take some kids into Fred Winston's lab um, to Ooh, look at yeast I'm research. Fred Winston. Yeah. Everybody knows Fred Winston. Um, <laughs> oh, <you> met him. <laughs> so yeah, and and you're gonna say that what everyone says, Fred. Fred's awesome, right? So. <laughs> he is awesome. <laughs> and so like I take my kids in, and like he's got his graduate students, and they always do a wonderful job, and they explain how yeast is a model organism to a small group of my students. And uh, you say about an imposter, but like that that feeling of trying to bridge that gap and reach out to somebody like like a Fred Winston who does this amazing work, uh, I feel like an imposter. Like. Yeah, I have a biology background, but like, yeah, I left that biology background to become a teacher, you know, more than 20 years ago. Um, my imposter side is on the science side. It's not on the the teaching side. Um, so it's interesting to hear you who have this vast experience in the lab and know how science works 
to feel sort of the same way while we're both working in the same job. It's a, I think it's a different perspective on that. It's definitely different, but I think it's a good thing yeah. feeling, uh, having the feeling to, to be an imposter because that means we're still learning, right? Oh, yeah. If you feel like you know everything, you know it all, it's, then then you're done, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> Yeah, hopefully I never feel that way. I, I feel, I feel, I feel like I know less now than I ever have in my entire life. So, <laughs> every year, every year, I feel like I know, I realize how much little I, how little I know about the world um, as I learn more. So, all right. So let's dive into the question I like to ask you, and we sort of have teased it a little bit. So, how did you become a high school biology teacher? What what led you into the classroom? Um. Yes, my path is unusual, not that unusual really, because uh, I know there's other teachers that have gotten into teaching from a different career. I'm not unique in that respect, um, but it is unusual in terms of, um, it's not like I always knew I wanted to be a teacher or this is something I was I, I wanted to do. It was, honestly, if I have to be honest, it was necessity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I had a job at some point and I reached a point in my career where I really stopped enjoying something that I thought was my passion. And that was pretty hard. Um, I no longer enjoyed what I was doing. Um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I just left. Hmm. Um, I guess I was smart enough to realize I need to leave, but I wasn't smart enough to know what I wanted to do with my life. <laughs> and, um, and I was literally without a job, and then uh, an opportunity opened up to like cover for uh, long term for maternity leave, hmm. and I said, "Well, sure, why not? Let me just try this." And um, and that was the end, basically, because I got into teaching and I never left because I ended up loving it, um, and and that's it. Yeah, <laughs> I never thought I'll end up in that type of job, but. Um, you know, it, it it goes to show you that sometimes you never know what you're capable of, or you never know what you can get into, uh, what can you can start loving until you actually try. And this is what I always tell my kids: try, don't 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 close your mind. Try something new, do something different, and then you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. Well, you were not like complete. Like teaching was not something completely foreign to you in your academic uh, background. You were teaching at that level. Um, well, I was teaching more of at the, at the undergraduate and graduate level, which is very different. Mm -hmm. And, and I have to say and to this day, by the way, um, I have friends and colleagues ask me, uh, to explain something that they simply refuse to understand. And I have a hard time explaining it. I actually never enjoyed teaching undergraduate students. <laughs> I love teaching high school students. And I still to this day cannot explain why. Hmm. Um, it's I, I do enjoy teaching in general, but I have never enjoyed um, or really done it with any amount of passion teaching college students. Uh, however, when it comes to high school students, I just I don't know why, but this is something that really, really does it for me, hmm. essentially. Um, and I still cannot explain what the difference is. Um, yeah. Perhaps it's because I feel like we have more of a chance to shape them and mold them at this younger age, as opposed to once they're in college, they're 
I mean, there's still a chance to influence their learning and shape them, but not as much as, as at a younger age. Or perhaps I'm just uh, a sillier person. I can relate better to teenagers than to <laughs> college students. I don't know what the answer is, yeah. really. Well, I wonder a little bit about if it's, you know, that... Uh... I, when I looked at the places that you've worked, you know, they're they're basically all R1s, right? They're all places where your job as a researcher was you were a researcher who then also taught classes. Um, I wonder if the, the structure of those research environments made it so that teaching was just this, like, other thing that you did. Um, and I wonder if you had, you know, much support or you know, training about how to teach at the university level. Did there, was there a lot about like methods to teach at that level or it was just like, this is the class you're teaching. Um, here's a little bit of background, but was there really much professional development in terms of your teaching in those spots? Uh, none whatsoever. None whatsoever. So first of all, it, at, uh, prior to me, um, running my own lab at Rutgers, all my teaching was very sporadic and very informal. And the first time I actually had to teach classes was at Rutgers University. And there was absolutely, and, and I'm, I'm not saying this, this is unique for Rutgers. I think this is pretty much everywhere in academia. Mm -hmm. You start a job somewhere and they tell you, these are the classes you're teaching and that's it. <laughs> there is absolutely no preparation. Most PhD programs do not offer any type of instruction on how to teach, any type of support. And once you get a job, you're not, you know, different places are different. Often um, your more experienced colleagues will give you some pointers, how to write exam questions. Mm -hmm. But nobody really teaches you how to teach. Yeah. Essentially. <laughs> um, some, I have to, at least in bigger research universities, maybe smaller universities, which are more student-centered I'm sure offer a lot more professional development and um, but in a bigger research institution, this is it. You go and you start teaching and that's it. So there was really very little to no support. And as you pointed out, um, your primary function as a research scientist is to get in grant money, <laughs> public papers, <laughs> yeah. uh, train graduate students, and then teaching undergraduate is like an afterthought. And it usually doesn't um, doesn't help much in terms of your, it doesn't have such a weight when you're evaluated, um, for, for tenure, for instance. Yeah. So. Well, that was, I, that was what I was thinking about for, you know, when I talk to, you know, friends or colleagues who work in various settings, actually my, my sister's not in science, but she works at, um, at Tulane. Um, and she, that's an R1 and she's in, uh, musicology. So she does music and history. And even for her, where, her job is she teaches and researches being in an R1 her primary goal is to publish um, like yes. <laughs> publishing is you know the publisher parish mantra happens even in non sciences at R1s and I know that from people I talk to at say around here where I am you know at Holy Cross or um, even at WPI um, where there's a little bit more of a focus on the, the student experience. Um, I think it depends a little bit on what department you are at WPI, but certainly the colleagues I know who, who teach at Holy Cross, they very much talk about the importance of the, the training of the students and the teaching of the students um, as being in parallel with the research lab that they work in, not as being a secondary. And depending on what university you talk to, you definitely get a very different feel. Um, 
So I, I also wonder if that, you know, part of that also means, so where do you spend your emotional energy? Where do you spend your, really, your where do you build your relationships? I would imagine at Rutgers, your, your primary focus was making sure your lab was running and that your relationships were good in that setting. Yes, most definitely. Yeah. So... Um, so I'm I'm curious, like this this does drive. So you you this is not like you did this passing fancy where you're like, oh, I'll go look at research for a little while. You, I mean, you had a a long career. I would consider um, down this this research. You were a principal investigator. You have a PhD. You worked in all of these various settings. Um, the teaching part doesn't come over, but how does the research experience that you have working in labs, does that have an impact on sort of your day-to-day teaching or how you you plan and think about science teaching? Um, I'm sure it does. It's kind of, it's kind of hard for me to pinpoint how it helps me uh, simply because on one hand, (laughs) I feel very young and very silly and I can relate to my kids. On the other hand, I feel ancient because I've done this, I've been there. So everything I do, I do very fast. Yeah. So my colleagues, for instance, are complaining that they need to compile this data for student growth objectives and make this spreadsheets. I'm like, yes, I've done this, been there. I've done grants, I've done budgets. So I just, instead of complaining, I sit down and I do it very fast. Yeah. Um, but in terms of like specifically day-to-day teaching, I don't know because, you know, doing research and teaching high school students is very different. Um and the other thing is sometimes when I talk to other colleagues, they tell me, oh, you students are so lucky because, um, you know, you get to bring into your teaching your research experience. But I teach in a school where um, socioeconomically um, few of my students, if any, are actually thinking of actively pursuing any type of research career. Most of them go into medical fields like nursing and physician assistant and or into completely different fields so there isn't really much interest in pursuing a more academically oriented career so i'm I'm not sure i'm really able to like benefit my students a lot with my research experience i mean it helps me in my teaching because i think it helps me better um teach my students from the very lowest to the ap level about science as a process, Mm. which I think is important because, you know, I have done it. So it's easier to teach, teach it that way instead of just, you know, like deliver the facts and tell them, okay, science is a collection of facts. No, science is a process. And we constantly go back and forward and three steps back and two steps forward. And then let's go to the left and now let's turn to the right. And (laughs) it is not a linear (laughs) process of like the scientific method like it used to be taught you know you start here and then you end up here (laughs) well maybe you end up there or you end up somewhere else and um and the other thing is my kids do know that i've come from a different place and i think um that helps with with them listening to me sometimes because sometimes Mm -hmm. i feel that especially teenagers feel like disconnected and when they see someone coming from a different place, it's um, it helps them see things differently. Uh, it helps them see different perspective, essentially. Opens up a little bit their horizons. But in terms of teaching, I feel like um, I started at a negative, not even at a zero when I started teaching. Because I had very little to none no preparation. Mm. So it was an uphill battle for me. 
when I started. All right. So let's let's go through that process. You you dive in, you take over this maternity leave and you're like, yes, this is the thing I'm going to do. Um, so what steps have you have you taken to make that that transition? Because in my mind, I, I can see a little bit of a through line of how the experience in your background from academia could help you. But I'm, I'm curious, what process did you do? So you get this maternity leave and that that's a temporary thing. How does this lead you to getting a ter- teaching certificate and getting an actual job? And what is that? What does that process look like? Well, I guess it, it's different in different states. Um, in New Jersey, like a lot of states have this alternate route program mm-hmm. where you can get certified. So I had to take classes in addition to teaching. Um, I had to take uh, the praxis exam. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think the classes I took really, they helped a little, but not much. Mm-hmm. What, how I learned, I basically learned on the job. I learned by... Um, first at first observing my colleagues who were very, very helpful in my school. And then I have to say that most of my learning I did on the job. I learned from experience. Um, and the other transformative way was basically being part of the AP teacher community because being part of that community has really taught me so much and has transformed my teaching and and it still does yeah it's every day and every hour um and i i'm still learning i still feel like an imposter i still am so humbled every day by uh, more experienced teachers it's just um it, it's a never-ending process of, of learning well, that's I, I'm going to come back to the, the the communities in just a second, but um, one of the things that I've sort of turned over my head a little bit about my teaching, um, as I've gone through the arc of my career, is trying to think about approaching teaching like it is a science. You know, asking questions, you know, collecting some data, um, looking at the data that I have, um, you know, c- trying different things, experimenting. I feel like as a teacher, you could just do the same thing every every day, um, year after year, but that, A, that'd be boring. But um, I also don't think that that would, I don't know that you'd learn much, you know, doing that. But I feel like you can follow this path of teaching that is very much like a science where you're asking a question going through. Now, you don't get the hard data that you get in a scientific lab, but I'm wondering if that you know, if that sort of helped you by having the experience of knowing that in a lab you fail a lot and that's just kind of okay um, because a lot of the experiments you try don't work, did did that help or was it just as was it just as awful to fail in the classroom or struggle in the classroom as as everybody else is, even though you had that experience at the bench? Um, you're definitely right because science is not. I mean, I like to say like two things about science. Well, one, science is a process. And two, this is what I tell my kids. I said, you know, you're going to walk out of here, probably, especially my lower level kids, not remembering anything. Uh, but I do want you to walk out of here with skills because science is a way of thinking. Mm-hmm. It's not a collection of facts. So yeah, science is a way of thinking. And this has definitely helped me do exactly what you said. Um, you know, experiment, see the results, go back and change it. But there is a big difference. When an experiment fails in the lab, <laughs> you've wasted a lot of time, you've wasted money, maybe mm-hmm. your career. Yeah. But we have to also remember it's an experiment. Kids are different. They're living people. Mm. And 
um, it's scary when if you, to fail sometimes because you don't you don't know how this is going to impact um, the students long term or even even short term. And sometimes when one of my challenges has been to reach students that are um, let's say less motivated and have behavioral issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know they're smart, but let's say they have difficult situations at home and um, they're acting out in school. School is the only safe place for them. At the same time, this is also the only place where they can vent their frustrations. And so when I've had issues sometimes with a few of these students, um, and I felt like I maybe I could have handled it better or and then it's it's really scary because if you fail that experiment, I mean, I, I don't want to go and say like I failed this child, but it's it's um, it, it's a lot scarier than a failed experiment <laughs> because yeah. we're dealing with children and some of them are very vulnerable. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it, it's a I, I would say it's a little scarier. When, when you're trying something with your students and, and you feel like it, it's not going as well as you hoped it would be or it, it's really a failed experiment. And yes, you're going to go back and change your ways. Um, but it's not like buying a new set of reagents yeah. or spending one more weekends in the lab. Um, yeah, that's an interesting, it's an interesting perspective. I think it also... Um, it's hard to be as dispassionate about it uh, if there are people, you know, that's, <laughs> exactly. it's fairly easy to say, oh, you know, that, that didn't work or these reagents didn't work or this didn't work. Um, and we're just going to try this other way. Uh, but when they are people, it's, um, I think the, you're right. The, the emotional framing around those issues has to be much more, you have to be much more mindful of it. Yes, um, definitely. I would actually think that in some instances, because I work, I work with both a vulnerable population, a high at risk population, but I also work with the APs and the and high flyers. But I find that for many of my kids, the the students who are, you know, the students who might be the high flyers who've never struggled before, really in an academic setting. In some t- cases, I have to be as mindful about framing risk and failure with them because they just have very little experience with it. Um, and while it might be frustrating that it's like, you know, get over yourself. <laughs> like, yeah, sometimes you run an experiment, it doesn't work. Um, those students are, they're still, it, it's a new experience for them and not, ever, you don't know how they're going to react. Um, even the kids who are generally successful, you have to be mindful of how they are going to react to struggle and failure and how are they going to internalize that and what does that mean for them moving forward? Um, right. And then balancing also yeah. teaching them to deal with setbacks and failing and, and maintaining their motivation and their drive, because it's um, especially when you have little experience. I agree. It's like early on when you're doing science and nothing is working, it's very hard to maintain interest and motivation Yeah, and to realize that it, it's part of the process. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree. So I've had these issues with my AP kids as well that, um, you know, they're very disappointed that the labs are not working and it's very hard to turn it around and make it a teaching moment for some of them because they just not ready to, they're not ready to accept that failure um, means success down the line, essentially, yeah. because we learn from our mistakes. Absolutely. Yeah. I was, I was just thinking about the other day, I, uh, I'm, I'm working on a, a little module right now on ecosystems and I'm trying to build up 
Um, I don't know if you've ever seen those ecospheres that they have where you, there's like a little bit of algae and a few shrimp yeah. in a glass uh, vial. Um, and so I've been trying to make some of those using some algae and some brine shrimp um, in uh, 50 mil falcon tubes. Um, as just sort of like a little phenomenon interest catcher for my for one of my classes, um, but it's you know it's not easy to build a little tiny ecosystem. Um, but I've been doing that, and I, I came in the other day. We had a snow day, so it had been three days since I'd set up, and they looked great after 24 hours, and they didn't look great after <laughs> after 72. And uh, a, a couple of kids saw me. They have no idea what I'm doing because it, there it's not. Well, I'm not doing it with the class. It's just something I've got set up in the back and I'm checking it as it. And like, so, but I definitely have kids who are asking me about it and they're like, what are you doing? And I was like, yeah, this didn't work. And they're like, oh, and I'm like, yeah, it's fine. We're going like, to, I have an idea as to why I, I thought it was this. And now I'm going to, I'm going to reset it up and I'm going to set it up this way. And, and I was like, when this doesn't work, uh, this is, <laughs> this is going to be the, I think this might work, but when this fails, the, I have another idea. And they're like, so you don't expect this is going to work? I was like, yeah, I got my doubts. Um, <laughs> Cause that's what science is, is you, you collect some data and you, make incremental changes along a line but my goal is to get them to be something that would be around and live for you know ideally you know weeks or weeks but um if i can get them to live for one week that'd be awesome um and so i i, I didn't i failed at making it a week the first time we'll find out when i get back uh, on monday if i if i've extended these out to a five-day window um <laughs> after but but i also find that it's actually i do show my frustrations when things are not working and i think find that it's like it actually helps my kids because it's like you know you model behavior them yes you're frustrated i mean it would be inhuman not to be frustrated when something doesn't work yeah but you know you don't give give up and you move on and you learn and you try to make things better yeah and that you're like turning over in your head all right what when this doesn't happen how do I brainstorm out? How do I troubleshoot? How do I ask questions to refine my experiment? Like, how do you engage in science when when something doesn't work? Um, and I think that's that's an eval- those are valuable lessons for you, as you said, to model for your kids. So that's, that's very very good thinking. Uh, maybe I should show a little more frustration. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was, I'm, I don't know. I'm just so used to like, like my harebrained experiments taking me like four or five trials before I get close enough. Um, <laughs> when I, when I have these ideas. Uh, so I, I, maybe I just set my expectations low. Um, and then when they happen, I'm like super excited. So I probably am the other way. I'm probably overly excited when my, my ideas work. Um, <laughs> but I, I moderate on the front end. So expect, I sort of expect struggles and when I don't get them, then I get super excited. So Oh, a little different personality, I guess, uh, bringing that in. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, everybody deals differently with, um, you know, with difficulties and mistakes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I probably was more frustrated earlier. Um, <laughs> probably the first 10 years of teaching, if some experiment didn't work, I would have probably just said, oh, we're not doing this experiment. It doesn't work. Um, and and that was not healthy either. So um, this is probably my way of managing it. So I, So I do model good good scientific process, um, not getting too high, not getting too low, um, on these little, these things. Although I probably, I probably am more, I get, I get from my students, um, I've heard third hand from other people that I get, I get very excited in the classroom. Um, <laughs> that's what, that's how my students explain me to other teachers. They describe me as very excited about things, um, a lot. <laughs> so I'll take that. All right. So uh, you mentioned earlier those uh, those online communities and and sort of how they've been part of your 
you know, your growth and development as a teacher. And as I mentioned in the intro, you're like super involved in those. Um, you're one of those people who is regularly uh, adding into conversations, um, you know, questioning people's assumptions on things, providing other perspectives. And I'm just curious, how did how did you get involved in those? And then how is being involved in those sort of shaping what you do in the classroom, especially over the last few years? Uh, well, when I first started teaching, um, as I mentioned, I had little to no experience and I felt I'm way over my head. And actually, I took over an AP bio class, I think, <laughs> in April. So uh, the teacher went on maternity leave April 1st <laughs> and the exam was, what, May 6th or 5th? Yeah. I forget, you know, the first week of May or second week of May. And it was the scariest thing, one of the scariest things I've done in my life, I have to admit. <laughs> um, I'm not sure what I did with these kids <laughs> in the month, in, in the one month before the exam. Uh, but um, right after I was sent to a summer institute, and the first thing um, the college board consultant told us is go on the AP bioteacher community at the college board. Mm -hmm. And um, that's what I did. <laughs> and I never left. Wow. Um, I literally lived there for months and months and months just reading and reading and reading and, and, and without ever contributing, just lurking essentially. Yep. And um, I was, it was, to me, it was amazing. I was, I have never felt more the first few months, more stupid and more inadequate as I have felt. then. it was so intimidating. Um, it was really intimidating because I saw people that have been doing this for years that um, it took me a long time that, you know, we're constantly contributing, constantly coming up with new and different ways to teach, to better engage students, to, and at first I was really, really um, taken aback because I said, I, I will never be able to do this ever. It's like, what am I thinking? What am I doing here? And and then I slowly, it took me a while to realize that, you know, every teacher does things differently and every teacher has a different population of students. And mm -hmm. some of the things that some teachers do, I can never do with my kids because it's a different, completely different population. And it also, it takes a long time yeah. <laughs> to, to get somewhere and then you still haven't arrived at, you know, at your end destination. You keep traveling, you keep learning, you keep changing um but it uh, this was basically my my learning experience being part of that community at first silently and then slowly as I um gained more experience and more confidence I started contributing um and um and, and being part being part of that community is really the best PD I've had and I will ever have interacting with other teachers, listening to different perspectives from um, stealing resources, modifying resources, um, learning so much about topics that are outside of my comfort zone. Um, because my actually my background, I have very little background and I have no background in anything botany or zoology. Mm -hmm anything truly classical biology because I'm more of a molecular biologist. Um, I've had very little ecology. So 
these are still topics, anatomy and physiology, these are topics where I know I'm weak content-wise, um, and I um, have learned so much just by interacting with, with, with other teachers. Um, it's just amazing. And the other thing is that it's really gratifying when you feel that you're not only learning, but you're also contributing. And in a way, when you realize that by us interacting so much and sharing resources and sharing knowledge and sharing experience, we're reaching so many more students than just our own. Hmm. It's just mind blowing. <laughs> um, the impact this could have potentially this has really doesn't, it could have because we all learn from each other. Yeah. When you were talking about, um, you know, the idea of working in a lab, it made me think of you know, what you do when you work in a lab is let's say you're trying a protocol. A lot of times you reach out to another lab or you go to another lab where they're working with a model organism or they've worked with a protocol. You know, you read their, you read what they've written about it. You know, the, in science, it'd be a journal article and that, and I'm wondering about how, sort of that that's what our these are our journal articles like we we have journals and we have journal articles but our forums in a lot of ways is the way we share our research findings you know our classroom activities the the things that worked the things that we struggled with like this is sort of our you know our, our live streaming journal if you will um for communicating what we're doing in classroom um that as you were talking earlier that was sort of the parallel and i was thinking like the relationships that you end up building with other people from those communities allows you to be able to reach out to specific people and have those deeper conversations in order to extend things out. So I'm curious, what was there a moment when you felt like, okay, now I have stuff to add? Or was it just a really sort of a gradual process? I think it was more of a gradual process. And even even today, sometimes I feel like I say something, I'm like, ah, oh, I wish I <laughs> You know, <laughs> I think I'm over my head here <laughs> because somebody would come in and and uh, and just like, you know, keep your on your toes. Say, OK, well, no, you're not exactly right. I think, you know, so but the good thing about these conversations is you're going to leave your ego outside the door mm. when you enter that room of conversation, because you can't know everything. And sometimes, you know, we let our passions carry us a little too far. Maybe we say something that I mean, upon reflection, it's not really. 100% accurate, but this is why these discussions are so good because we get to reflect on our opinions, on our misconceptions, on our strong stances, <laughs> on our methods, and um, having these conversations and, and not taking things very personally helps keeps keep you honest and you know and reflective and and a better teacher. Mm. Um, as long as you don't, you know, get like overly sensitive. Oh my God, so and so <laughs> told me off, um, you know. But it just keep an open mind and be ready to discuss and see other people's views, and and you'll be a better teacher for it. Yeah. The other the other thing that comes up that I hear from some people who are not engaged in the in the forums, and you you mentioned it sort of a little bit, um, is sort of feeling overwhelmed, um, like. The one thing that sometimes happens can be very scary. Well, <laughs> to me, it's the volume. Like, especially now, you like you go onto that Facebook group and you just read, like, pick one day and read everything that's posted on the Facebook group in a given day, and you're gonna get 
questions about, you know, ecology, about evolution, about molecular, about, the, you know, all of these different types of resources, or you go on the drive, um, the files that are shared that are there, and there's there's a million different things. And that's just, you know, that's one. So if you go on the college board, there are tons and tons of resources. If you go on the Facebook group, there's a ton of resources. And then there's multiple Facebook groups, or there's the NSTA listserv, like there's all of these different places to get information. Um, I'm wondering if like, this is just the fire hose just doesn't bother you. Or if you have like a strategy to, to filter all the volume of stuff that comes at you. I, I have my own answer to what, how I do it, but I'm curious as to how you manage the, the volume of ideas that come at you. I definitely filter and it also helped that i started on the college board uh, teacher community which is a very different forum and i don't mean to disparage the facebook page because there's many positives about the facebook page but the college board community the volume was a lot less i have to say because of the way it worked and um and people maybe because people are more timid and a facebook page is almost like an like like it's an Instagram or a Snapchat, you just post <laughs> what I really think. I mean, not without really thinking, but you just and you look for quick answers and you get quick answers. Whereas with the College Board community, it was a little. It's it's a different type of platform. So maybe because I started there, it was gradual introduction to all the information. And then the other thing is on the Facebook page, you just see you just filter certain things. And sometimes, I have to admit that sometimes I get a little. I don't know the, whether the word is annoyed, but yes, I get a little overwhelmed because somebody's asking a question and then somebody answers and then five more people say the same thing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, what's the need? Uh, it seems like it's, um, um, you know, almost like, okay, let's take a poll. Let's see how many people can agree with me. Yeah. You know, it's type of thing. Whereas let's say in the college board community, you would know there's a few experts that, if they speak their word, that's it. <laughs> you know, if they say it's okay to do this, then that's it. Um, so I, I just filter. I just filter things. And uh, I've had, um, um, I've mentored a um, couple of new AP teachers um, last year and this year. And one of the first thing I, I told my mentee, I said, you know, just keep in mind that not everything that gets posted is necessary, something that would work for you. Or something that you want to do, use your own judgment because it, it's it's a free platform. Everybody posts, everybody says what they're doing. Doesn't mean it's something you have to like. Doesn't mean it has something. It's something that you want to do. Um, and um, I've often referred the new teachers to more the um, teacher community on on College Board because it's I think it's easier to navigate, especially when you're starting out first mm -hmm. than Facebook pages. Um, but I, I, I am on the Facebook page a lot. I read, I don't always respond and I, I filter out <laughs> That's what I do. Yeah. Um, but it can be very overwhelming when you're starting out. And there was recently a teacher who was, um, bringing that very issue up that, you know, as a first year teacher, it's, it's, there's way too many resources, way too many posts and she doesn't know where to start. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's and the funny thing for me is that I, I'm all, on all of these groups. I like I almost never post anything. Like it's it, I am completely. You mentioned earlier, like you went on and at first you were a lurker. Um, I've been on a lot of these groups. I I very very rarely post anywhere, um, 
because that's just not how I process information. Um, I kind of handle one idea at a time. I'm very much a, what am I working on in my classroom? Um, that's sort of what's front burner. And I scan, I kind of read the, I kind of read the online stuff almost like I read headlines, you know what I mean? And if something catches me, maybe I'll dive into the discussion a little bit more if I've got a little bit of time, but, um, I let a lot of it just sort of wash over me and I don't, I don't take it too deeply, but I'll archive it sort of in the back of my head. Oh, there's this discussion about this. When I get to this topic, I may want to revisit this. Um, but I'm also not a first year teacher. I'm somebody who sort of has very decidedly specific needs of things I want to work in and improve in my classroom. And it's not everything. So I, I wonder about the overwhelming nature of the information because it is. And as you said, there's different personalities and I could pick five different teachers who teach really awesome AP classes and none of them are the same. Um, and then if I'm new and I'm trying to figure out the right way to do it, how do, who do I follow? What do I do? Um, and that's, that's really hard, I think. It, it is really hard, but I think it helps being a reflective teacher. So you do things one way, one year, and then you realize that uh, maybe you should do them differently. Mm-hmm next year but as you pointed out this this is i think this is great that um um you can't change everything all at once so every year i have like a specific like recurring theme that i'm working on this year yeah that i think i can do better and i purposefully look for resources and better ways to get this particular point across this year um and to get some feedback on okay is this working or not um, the other thing that people seem to like not realize it's um, with, with the Facebook pages is there's this little search button. <laughs> sometimes, uh, sometimes I'm, I really want something different or I have a question and I just, I, I type in either somebody's name because I know that person, I remember that person posted something or I know that person is an expert in that field. So there's bound to be a threat or I just type in the topic and Threads come up and then I read them. So yeah. it's okay not to read everything because you can search through it. So. Yeah. The couple of times that I have posted it was after like looking through all my own stuff, looking through my drive, searching once or twice, and then went, all right, I'm just going to throw this out there. What are people doing there? And a lot of times the other thing that I do, and this is sort of the the benefit of age, and I also think it's a benefit of having all of these different um these platforms is you get to know people. Um, and I am much more a one-on-one person. So for example, like, um, the other day I was, I was, I sent a message to, to Bob Kuhn to ask him a specific question. And then the other day I, I was texting and actually I talked for five minutes on the phone to Ryan Reardon because I had a very specific question about something they posted. I could have easily put it into a longer thread, but I had very specific questions and I didn't want to bog down discussions. You know what I mean? About, what what was going on like I felt like I don't know I felt like my question was a little bit off topic and wasn't necessarily all that important so I just communicated one-on-one with them Um, and so I also for me I filter I will add into a discussion when I feel like sort of as you're saying I'm not just adding in another comment that is the same comment as everybody else Um, if I feel like I can help expand the conversation or move the conversation into a new way that will benefit other people, absolutely I'll post. Um, but I'm, I, I'm just somebody who just not my nature. It's, I think it's a weird thing about my personality compared to that as much as I'm have my, my you know, hands in all of these different places. It's just not something that I'm comfortable with. 
immediately posting. I like to think before I post. And a lot of times by the time I've thought things out, whatever I had thought, somebody else had asked the question or someone else had posted the resource and (laughs) then I don't have to worry about it. So, um, yeah, it's fun. And a lot of times the, I, I don't know about you, but I come to these conversations and I open it up and it's like, you know, somebody's in there and I go, there's 67 comments in this thread. And I, like, I don't, I don't post anything because I'm busy reading the discussion. And by the time I'm done, I'm like, okay, I got a good picture of this. I'm done. I don't need to add anything to this. Well, I I feel that way often. It's like, I don't ask questions, not because I don't have them, but because just by reading through a couple of threads and my question has been answered. So I don't feel like I can, you know, I can learn anything anymore (laughs) from, from, from posting a question. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it's, I agree, but I I feel for young teachers, for new AP bio teachers or new teachers, because it really is a lot of information out there for them to sift through. Yeah, a part of me feels jealous of them and part of me totally feels bad for them. (laughs) I think if they can get through those first two or three years and then sort of mold their own perspective, um, they're if the the learning curve the learning curve is going to be hard those first couple of years but there's going to also be this wealth of resources for people once they get through that um i'm not sure that the first 3 years of teaching is ever going to be easy um maybe i should even expand that out the first 5 years of teaching uh are they're all hard um and overwhelming maybe this just adds to that overwhelmingness but once you get sort of past that bubble um there is a wealth of support out there nobody should ever feel isolated or alone um, which is which is a real positive aspect of these these discussions. I agree. All right, so uh, so we've talked about sort of your start. You got into it. What are what are you looking forward to? What are you working? You sort of alluded to. You've always got a couple of things. What are you working on and looking forward to in your classroom? You know, in the upcoming few years. So I, as I said, I always um, I. Tr- Somebody told me this when I first started teaching. I, I, I even I can't even remember who it was. Maybe it was um, um, I think it was Mary Worth. She was the APSI coordinator. Uh, I would never forget her because she was my first mentor <laughs> and teacher. And I think it was her. She said, "You know, never change more than twenty percent of your class in any given year." And I um, believed her from the moment she said it, because I think it makes a lot of sense. So every year I work on something. I don't try to like rehaul everything. And this year, um, my focus is it's hard to like decide what to work on because Mm -hmm. I feel like I listen actually to one of your podcasts. I forget which one. I think it was with Mark Little. Maybe it was with Jen. I don't remember. What do you need to teach with purpose? Mm -hmm. Um, or at least that was my take on it. So what is it that, you know, you kids come in and you kind of expect them to know this, this and that, but then it turns out they don't know it. So you need to really teach it with a purpose, like let's say how to graph or what type of graph to choose. Or um, so every year it's like, okay, what is it that I really need to teach purposefully my kids? Because I know they won't have it. And I know it's very important. What skill would it be? And this year for me, it's really quantitative reasoning skills. That's what I'm focusing on. Um, but honestly, what I'm looking forward to is not my AP classes, it's my regular biology classes, because we're making more and more changes, teaching our regular biology classes more like the AP biology. So being an AP biology teacher has really transformed my regular bio classes Hmm. and implementing more skill-driven instruction rather than content-driven 
And this is what I'm looking forward to, doing more and more inquiry, student-centered, skill-based instruction. Um, because, as I said, we can't change our course 100%, not even 80. We like do like maybe 5 or 10% every year. Um, but it's gradually going in the direction in which I think science instruction should be going. And, and it's really exciting because I feel like even my, especially my lower level students, really, it really benefits them. Yeah. Yeah. As you're, as you're talking, I'm like nodding, uh, because last summer I spent all this time, uh, really more or less doing training that I thought was going to get me ready to make some changes in my AP curriculum. Um, and what I realized as I was going through them was that my AP curriculum is actually in a pretty good place. Not that it's perfect because it's never perfect, but that, I became aware of the gaps between what I was doing in terms of science and skills in AP versus what I was doing science and skills in all my other classes um, because of the work and the reflection I got to do when I was tr looking at how to teach AP better. I realized I had to go and work on <laughs> my other classes a lot more. Um, and so I, I have done most of my work this year on focusing on I, – I, I don't know that I follow your 20% rule because I've, I've overhauled some pretty heavy things this year. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not fine. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I was like, Oh good. I'm, I'm glad I don't know that rule because I've completely violate that thing. Cause I, uh, I think I would go so far as to say I've in the last two years, I've completely changed how I present content in my, in my honors bio class. And I don't even know how I'd quantify that, but I've changed, I've changed some massive components of it. Not not everything, but it, that has been a, a major time commitment and it's been a major focus and a major energy and asking a lot of those same hard questions. But it's exactly in the line of what you just said. Um, do I have, do, do labs drive, does data drive, Does do experiments drive curriculum? My AP classes, absolutely, that's the case. But my other classes weren't that way. Um, and as you said, it's, it's just much more engaging. Um, to, to have investigations and to have labs and to have these experiential things as opposed to different activities to transmit information, um, for lack of a better way of describing. I think that that was the nature of my, my intro bio classes was more about passing on information and less about engagement and skills. So, um, yeah, very much nodding as you're saying that, because I feel like those the same I'm working on that that same model. But with that in mind, this is now that um, iterative feedback loop that you get. Now that I'm doing this with my my classes, I'm actually pushing into some new ground. And now I'm seeing some holes in my AP class. Like, oh, now that I've done this with yeah, my. Yeah, that's very true. <laughs> yeah. Now that I've seen done this, like uh, the, the big thing that's sort of popping out to me um, is that now I've been doing these these things and I've improved both labs and I've, I'm working on, um, I've also been changing the way I, I approach homework. I now look at the way I assign homework in my AP classes and I'm like, oh, gosh, I really don't like the way that happens. So <laughs> I, I really don't like my learn how I, I frame my learning objectives in my AP. That's been, these are the things that are driving me crazy right now. I feel like it's almost like a tipping point. Like, or, you know, maybe the, 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 where's the fire? Like the fire right now or the fire coming into this year was dealing with my honors classes and my, my alternative program classes. But my fire next year is going to be the homework and the learning objectives in AP. Um, and so like it shifts year to year, depending on that feedback of working with one group of students and getting the, the, the feedback about how to improve curriculum. But then that's going to show you needs in other classes. So. Definitely. I, I, I feel that, um, Teaching, I've actually, like, I think the, 
after teaching two years, I, I went and asked to, to teach regular bio because I've had only the honors bio and the AP bio. And I said, I want all levels of bio to teach because I feel like it has helped me teach better all of them. So how I teach my lower level kids helps me inform how to teach the AP kids and vice versa. It's definitely mostly teaching AP bio has helped me teach regular bio. Mm -hmm. But now that you're saying this, I never really thought about it. But now what you what you just said, it, it makes sense because I feel, okay, it goes both ways. It, does. <laughs> it really does. It really does. Um, it really does go both ways. And you just gave me an idea of what I'm going to work on next year. because. <laughs> um, Yes, that homework that I'm assigning for my AP kids, I've always struggled with how to make it consistent and how to make it useful and productive. And I think this is something that I need to work on with a purpose, not just um, hotspot and like, okay, today I'm going to assign you this, tomorrow I'm going to assign you that. Um, it's um, And I, I've already am working a little bit on it, but um, it needs more work, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny, like I've, I'm sort of moving to the, I, I'm on the end of lecture kind of model where, you know, I've, if you were in my classrooms 10 years ago, pretty much all my classes, lecture made a major component of how I taught. I used PowerPoint, I presented, and I, I wasn't just me telling them information. It was very, I thought it was pretty Socratic. There were a lot of questions, um, but- very yeah, inter interactive questions. And I think over time, I continued to make them more and more interactive, but it was still very teacher-centered. Um, and in the last two years, like I've completely broken teacher-centeredness in my in my honors classes. But the truth is, the place that I moved away from teacher-centered first was my alternative program kids. Like I never even built PowerPoints for those guys because it was like, that was just not going to happen. Like it, it just wasn't like, I never, I never chalk talked with my alternative program. It was always, here's an activity. Let's use the activity to open things up. So like, because I was working with this very vulnerable population, this population that I, in my mind, it was like, they're just not going to tolerate lecture. I never lectured. And it made me realize, wait a minute, I do not have to stand in front of the room and be a teacher centered instructor to have the students work through content and work through skills like that, like that's the way I learned it. That's that's where my realizations came from. And so if a, similar to what you're saying, like working with not necessarily the honors and the AP, but working with a different population and dealing with the challenges and the questions you have to deal with working with a different population shows you a different ways to be an instructor. Um and it will inform. It does. Uh, to me, that's that was sort of the takeaway. And I was actually just thinking about that just the other day as I was putting together a, a module for my for my alternative program kids that like really what I'm doing with them has been very consistent over the last 10 years. And what I've done with AP and honors has radically changed to be more and more like what I've always done with my alternative program kids. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great, great goals. And hopefully uh, I'm glad I gave you a good idea. Uh. Definitely. <laughs> But th this is what's so good about interacting with, with other people. Even uh, sometimes, I mean, this is also how science works, as yeah. you pointed out. You know, scientists talk to each other. It just sometimes, even if you don't specifically give me a specific idea, just by me talking and telling you about what I'm doing, something can come to me. So like a sounding board. Cool. Um, but the difference being that I think that biology teachers are a lot more collaborative <laughs> And selfless than scientists <laughs> when they're collaborating. Well, we're not going to like, we're not rushing to both get something into nature 
or up right. on up, or up on bioarchive or you know like <laughs> neither of us are trying to plant a flag on the end of lecture or anything like that like so the the non-competitiveness of our, our uh, of our profession sort of helps it helps a lot yep definitely <laughs> All right. So I know uh, from our one of our talks, uh, one of our little short conversations we had out in St. Louis, I know a little bit about what you like to do when you're not teaching. And you're probably loving this uh, snowy winter we've had. But uh, when you're not in the classroom, what do you like to do? Oh, boy. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, was, I had a very, very, very bar- boring college and graduate school years. And only after I got a little older <laughs> did I become adventurous. So I ski a lot. Mm-hmm. Every chance I get, we uh, usually go out west to Utah skiing oh, wow. once in winter break and once for a spring break. Um, in the meantime, since we live in flat, flat, flat New Jersey, <laughs> there are no mountains here. Um, I run, I mountain bike. Um, I'm very, very active physically. Uh, and um, I also am a soccer mom. <laughs> yeah. And that's a big part of our weekends and hour of week because my son, who's 13, he plays soccer competitively and uh, we're very involved in that. So yeah. I'm actually lucky that my family is as crazy as I am. So most of the things I enjoy, we do together. Oh, that is good. Right. Yeah. Well, I know about New. I know about New Jersey skiing. My my wife is from Northern Jersey, so uh, I was thinking because I, I I summer in New Jersey every year. We go down to to Wildwood, um, the Wildwood Cape May area. Um, so I'm always you there. But she had this this place in her town that was called Camp Gaw. It was like a little. They called it the Ski Bump. Uh, <laughs> it was not it was not a ski resort. It was like a little tiny hill in town where you could like take a tow line up and ski down in New Jersey. So uh, I imagine there's not a lot of skiing in the central New Jersey area where you are. No, no. Plus, we we don't even go to um, uh, the Pens- the Poconos. Oh, yeah. uh, people go skiing here uh, because for, for us, skiing is more about being in a in a real mountain rather than you know simply the sport of skiing. So um, it's not about us about the skiing it's more like being um being in the mountain essentially so um it's it's but i can't believe you're going to the cape may area if you're from massachusetts (laughs) (laughs) we've been living in new jersey for what now for i don't know how many years i don't want to say but still um my husband and i say who would want to go to cape may if we can go to cape cod Well, it's, 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 I'm sorry. No, no, it's, it's, well, the truth is it's her family tradition because they're New Jersey people and they go, and they go down there, uh, every year. So they've been going down to, to the Wildwood Crest area, uh, Cape May area every year for, gosh, her parents have been doing it for 50 years. So, um, so yeah, we, but we go down usually for, yeah, so we do it and you know, like I, I have two boys and they're, you know, uh, 10 and 14 and I've got two nephews who are, uh, one just turned 17, the other's 14. So I've got these boys and they've been doing this since they were little kids. So, you know, we, it's, we go through the, it's the same vacation every year. Uh, some people think that that's annoying. Other people enjoy the tradition of it, but, um, you know, we take the boys down and there's the boardwalk and there's games on the boardwalk and there are rides and, you know, it's three or four days. And I always say that it's grandma's vacation. It's grandma's chance to go out with her, her four grandsons for three or four days and have a few meals and take them and watch them play games and buy them ice cream. And it's, it's grandma's vacation. So, um, (laughs) 
it's it's not necessarily what I rank as my uh, as like it's not for me. Like we go there, and it's not it's not so that I am having my vacation. But sometimes when you go on family vacation, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. So because we still we still go uh, even though we we've been living for so many years in Jersey, we still go up to Cape Cod, and uh, we still have friends who live in the Boston area, and um, it's just the Massachusetts coast is is something. Yeah. Well, I'm not even like as much a beach person. I would much rather like for me getting a, a lake house, um, you know, like up in Vermont, New Hampshire, where it's like a still water where you could, you know, canoe or fish or something like that. To me, that's like that's much more of a vacation. So I like the mountains, but I don't want it with all the snow. Like I want a mountain. <laughs> I want a mountain in like July where <laughs> I can go on the on a street, go fishing in a stream or go on a canoe or go on a kayak or something like that uh, in still water. That would be that's much more of a vacation for me. So. Yeah. So. Yeah. One of these years, I, I always sort of joke that like one of these years we're going to rebel and we're gonna, that's what that's what our summer vacation is going to be. But I got a feeling it's not going to happen anytime soon. <laughs> Someday I get to set my own tradition. Someday. Someday. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, so before we get to the picks of the episode, do you have any questions for me? Well, you ended up answering all the questions I had for you. <laughs> I really wanted to know what your classroom looks like. Uh, because that's, that's, that's something I'm always, I'm always looking for new and fresh ideas. And I'm, I, and I also think that, you know, what a teacher's classroom looks like, it's also speaks volume about who that person is as a person, not just as an educator, because we do take our personalities are part of our way of teaching. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I don't actually have a classroom. Um, so I teach in a building and our building is, is, is too populous and too packed and we do not have enough biology rooms. So I actually teach in three separate rooms. Um, and I'm never, yeah. So I, and I have, I have three preps and I teach in three rooms. Um, my AP classroom is probably the most that is my classroom because the only classes that are in there are my two AP classes, the other two AP classes that are taught by my colleague and then one of my honors classes. So three of my five classes take place in one room. Um, and in that room we have, uh, we have a lot of living things around. We have sort of a, a cent- we have desks in the middle. We've got a standard set of like 24, 25 student desks facing a whiteboard. Um, and then around the outside, we have six giant lab benches. And then we've got a lot of tanks of various things. We've got grow lights. Uh, my colleague has a giant vat of hissing cockroaches, which I stay away from. Um, I've got several jars of brine shrimp because, as I mentioned earlier, I've been messing around with brine shrimp. I have a saltwater tank in there, which has um, uh, some saltwater snails and some macroalgaes, um, along with uh, just a couple of other little things. I've tried to put sea urchins in there unsuccessfully um, for for things. So like that. So I got a lot of living things. We got a giant fish tank that has my colleague's turtle. Uh, right now we've got like 8 million uh, vestigial wing fruit flies that are in there because we're doing a couple of fruit fly labs. And so there's a lot of life kicking around in that room. Um, and then in the room that I teach my one honors bio class in, that is going to have, uh, that has also a lot of tanks around, a lot of model systems, a lot of Winogradsky columns. I have students in honors build uh, model uh, ecosystems in the fall. And so we keep a handful of those around. So I've got little bog terrariums and uh various things like that all kicking around the room uh several tanks bubbling things of algae i've got a elodia and duckweed tank that i maintain in there that also has some freshwater snails 
Um, and again, six large be benches around the outside with some student desks in the middle. And then I teach in an alternative program class where those students generally don't go out. They move around, but I go to them. And um, I allow, sometimes I'll bring them over to the AP classroom prep room area to do experiments, but I also have grow lights in there. And then I usually just bring and set up equipment in that room. But that classroom also has a garden. So we have an external garden and we're building an outdoor classroom space adjacent to that um, that several of my colleagues are working on and I'm contributing a very minimal amount to. So it gives a little bit of a sense of the my day and my teaching space that I get to use um, sort of on a day to day basis. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, we've got nature trails. Uh, we have a nature trail on our, our school campus. It's not a huge one, but it has um, an oak conifer forest, a red maple swamp, a man-made pond. It has a little bit of a wetland. You have a little bit of a cultural grassland. So you get to, we have a lot of places to sort of exemplify um, biology and nature. And then, you know, we're in the woods. I mean, we're in we're on the outskirts of Eastern Massachusetts. Um, so it's pretty wooded. There's a ton of conservation land. So we try to utilize... Um, the natural environment that surrounds the kids as a as a window into biology as best we can, particularly with our honors um, first year bio bio students, and I do a little bit with my alternative program kids as well. So probably it, it probably engages them a lot the alternate alternative programs to interact with nature. Yeah, yeah. The or... gar the garden has been has been really good. Uh, last year kind of fell a little flat, but um, some years that garden has been like. It, it's revived us almost as we get into the spring and we talk about planning out a garden and we go out and we utilize that space and um, the, you know, grow peas and we grow some lettuce screens and sometimes we grow stuff that we'll harvest in the fall that we'll just let go dormant. And um, yeah, it's been a really, that's been a really nice, um, it breaks it up. So we'll go out and do two days maybe working in the garden during the week and we'll tie lessons to it. So um, it's one thing to say, let's, D let's extract DNA from strawberries. It's another thing of, hey, let's go out and collect some strawberries and then harvest DNA from it. Uh, it doesn't sound like a huge difference, but it makes a subtle difference when the kids are the ones who grew the strawberries. So I bet it does. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's a, that's a little bit onto my space. Uh, all right, cool. Um, that's a good, that's a good question. That's a new one. I like that. Uh, <laughs> all right. That's true been asked so many different questions yeah I'm, I'm i should go back and re-listen re to all of them and see, see what i've see how many times i've contradicted myself um but well, uh, yeah somebody recently asked in one of the groups like what kind of critters we have in the classrooms and i thought that was an interesting question yeah I had a, I think I actually, I, oh, they, there was a poll question and I think I answered it. Right. I had right. like, cause I have like 8 million things because I have, <laughs> you know, cause uh, we use an AP we've long time for a long time. We've used, that's why I mentioned Fred Winston at the top. We, um, in AP, and this is totally the brainstorm of, of my colleague. He wanted to teach AP through the lens of model organisms. So he's been building up for more than a decade, all these resources on, um, he picked six model organisms. So we have E. coli, yeast, uh, Drosophila, the mouse, C. elegans, and uh, Arabidopsis. Um, and so at any given time, we usually have at least four of them going in the room in one way or another. Um, and it's sometimes in the spring when the students are doing independent projects, we'll have all six going. That's uh, amazing. And so like, so we have all those. I have my, um, and then I've been looking at, I love the, the idea of using a model system because what I found is when students design their own investigations, um, it's amazing how little they know about how to like keep things alive, like that plants need water. 
um, that animals need feeding, like things like that you would think are kind of obvious, but they just don't know. So by having some simple systems where you can say, all right, here's my brine shrimp tank. If you want to do an experiment on whatever, here are some experiments that you could pick from. Let them learn a baseline experiment just like we've learned in AP. And then when they want to do an independent experiment, they've learned enough about keeping the living thing alive <laughs> that they can they can build off of that. And so that's why I have, you know, the duckweed around because it's a it's a simple, you know, aquatic plant and you can do experiments with it. It's, you know, the the brine shrimp sort of work in that same way. Um you know, having those those tanks of things that are around, they're also a curiosity. I mean, a lot of times kids just come into my room and it's before the bell and what are they doing? They're watching this. They're looking at the the snail, uh, how the snail is eaten through the algae and how it looks different today than it did yesterday. Um, and it's just, yeah, you know, it allows you to integrate so many different concepts. Yeah, uh, it's it's some informal learning in a in a formal setting. So. So, yeah. Um, I'm a, I'm a big believer in putting, having, if you, if you teach biology without living things, I, I feel like there's a missing piece. Um, and it's hard, um, and it's annoying because they do manage, they do take upkeep and you have to manage them. And, um, you know, that there are, there are some frustrations with it, but I think that there's more benefit to the cost of, of doing those, having those living systems in there. Um. This is you've now tapped into an, a hidden passion of mine. So, um. <laughs> well, my, my kids are the ones taking care of my critters. So, yeah, well, I, I, most of the time, <laughs> that, that's the goal. Eventually, that's the goal. But I have to know enough about it so I can tell them enough to hand it all off. So, uh, eventually, that's I'm going to get there. So, all right. So we've got to pick of the week episodes, and uh, you were not disciplined enough to just pick one. So, <laughs> Desi, what are your picks of the episode? I am totally, I, t- I totally decided to, was disciplined and I picked only two <laughs> out of the many. So one was a story that I very briefly glanced through. I really wanted to, and, and, and the reason I picked it is because it's been my um, pet peeve and something that I felt like I needed to do a little more research is all these companies that do like Ancestry.com and 23 like me like do ancestry analysis based on your dna they're very popular with science teachers they're very popular with the public very popular with my students mm-hmm. and i've always had like misgiving so it's an article about um how dna testing botched my family's heritage and probably yours <laughs> it's um the person who wrote the article sent her dna and her family's dna to like three or four different companies and got completely different results and it's discussing the pitfalls and the drawbacks of this type of testing and how it should be interpreted and how it should be taken and what the impact is on regular people not science teachers not (laughs) scientists but who do this type of thing and um what kind of impact it can have on their life so this was this is something that i still feel like i want to like dig deeper a little bit deeper in uh, and the other thing was a very um, exciting discovery. Uh, we are very much into space science lately, my family. Mm-hmm. And the discovery was published in Science Magazine uh, about uh, the finally the discovery of presence of organic matter, amino acids, and extraterrestrial salt crystals found in cup of asteroids that are thought to originate outside of the solar system. And to me, this is extremely exciting i'm a science nerd so my <laughs> news picks are all about science good um, 
<laughs> That's what really excited, excites us in our family. Yeah. I'll have to, I, I don't think I've seen that. That's interesting. I don't think I've seen that Science Advances article on the salt um, crystals. I think it just came out like um, maybe last week in Science Magazine. Yeah. Yeah. So I saw the link posted by... Um, by the AAS, the American Association for Advancement of Science, they posted the link to the article. Yeah. Because uh, I follow them on Facebook. I mean, I the reason I have Facebook is the groups and the organizations I follow, basically. <laughs> a lot of the reason why I have Twitter. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> Twitter does that for me. Um, yeah, and you know the funny thing you mentioned the this uh, the the ancestry.com and those types of things. Um, I have a, I, we have dogs and we've had mixed breed dogs, uh, for many, for a long time. And, um, we've sent their DNA off. It's a lot cheaper than doing your own human DNA. Um, and they really only use like one snip, um, <laughs> to tell you what your dogs are. Really? And, and if you have, yeah, like, and so if you have a pure breed dog or something that is close to a pure breed dog, the snips are pretty accurate. Um, mm-hmm. it's like a very small number of snips that they use. I think, I think that it is, it's somebody was telling me one of the people who worked in, um, the lab that I was in a fellow, I did a fellowship in a lab a couple summers ago and somebody was up on their soapbox one day talking about how they're all fraud and they only use one snip and they don't use adequate data and da 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 and was ranting and raving about this and how like the company should, you know, it's fraudulent. <laughs> and I was like, you know, somebody who was a very passionate dog owner and a molecular biologist who was not happy about like the advent of these companies. And so the funny thing is I sent off, uh, we have a, a Sato rescue now, um, who came for, she's basically a Puerto Rican, uh, beach dog, uh, that we adopted, uh, just over two years ago. And we, we sent her DNA off and it is so comically bad, um, that, you know, she's this 13 pound chihuahua something mix and her DNA came back as 50% plot hound. And now plot hounds are these big giant, right. you know, dogs, <laughs> like, you know, hunting dogs basically. And like it is really like you're like no there's no way that one of her parents is a plot hound like 50 percent plot hounds you're telling me that ha- one of her parents is plot hound one side of the family was like 100 percent plot hound so um it's interesting to hear a criticism of the dna testing because um I- i've always been i've always heard about the interpretation side being um being fuzzy like what they say is your percentages of ge- developing certain traits or having certain characteristics that there was a great degree of variability in those, but I'm curious also about the what pieces of DNA they're using to interpret and what the science is behind each of those. Right. Uh, so, well, I don't, I don't want to criticize them because I don't have enough information, but yeah. I do have misgivings. And part of the misgiving, you know, one big major point of my misgivings is that, especially with ancestry, they do rely on having a database of SNPs from people that have self-reported essentially ancestry. Um, Because think about it this way, that we are, I mean, there's few people in modern human history today that are really pure, that are, I don't want to say the word inbred because it has negative social connotation, but from a biological point of view, there are very few populations that are technically inbred and very pure. Yeah. Most human population is very intermixed because there has been so much um, mobility and and migration that it's um, it's hard to have like a pure mm-hmm. ancestral origin or racial origin, and and it's it's also self-reported. So you are relying on a self-reported data essentially. 
okay, I'm going to analyze your DNA and you're telling me that you are 80% Caucasian yeah, and 20% Asian, maybe, right? Yeah. So um, that's the first issue, that it's, it's, it's relying on self-reported data. The second issue is that those databases, I don't think, are large enough yeah. uh, for the algorithm to be trained properly to make accurate uh, presumption. And I had no idea they're using different algorithm. And this is what the article reports that each of these companies using different computer algorithms to do their analysis. And they're perhaps they're also even, I don't even know what they're looking at. Are they looking at SNPs? Are they looking at uh, specific repeats, other regions of DNA? I doubt they're sequencing the whole genome, even though sequencing <laughs> is so cheap these days and fast. Yeah, it's not um, how they were built. Right. Yeah, so. But um, on one hand, they're popular, popularizing science and DNA and, um, and, you know, personalized medicine. On the other hand, they're really um, peddling what I tell my kids, BS, which stands <laughs> for bad science. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good line. I'll have to use that one. <laughs> right. Uh, so, well, the other thing you could say is that I also think what you've mentioned is this is also good science. Like you're going to get some data, but you don't just accept the data blindly. You should ask right. questions about the data. And so like data is not inherently good or bad. It's, you know, you, you it's make interpretation. Exactly. Yeah, it's up to the interpretation and right. the inter interpretation is not gospel. Um, the interpretation is the best explanation for the data you have at the moment but you shouldn't be wedded to it and it's not dogma and it should also raise questions. You should also be able to challenge and question aspects of that data. And until you get multiple lines of evidence, you really, that's all, it's, it's going to be a, a very tentative explanation. Exactly. So, yeah. All right. So I decided to pick my, um, my pick this week was uh, Emily Grassley's brain scoop. I know you're a fan of uh, YouTube celebrities, um, like Paul Anderson. Um, but here's another one for you. Uh, <laughs> Emily Grassley's uh, brain scoop is, so Emily works at the Fields Museum in Chicago, um, but her background originally, she was um, she was an art student who started doing some projects with some naturalists and was going out and watching them like dissect wolves and started basically creating a video series based off of these experiences she was doing um, out in the field. And then after she graduated, she was hired and she now does these videos uh, for the Field Museum in Chicago. And I love the channel Brain Scoop because um, she does all of these different scientific experiments or with scientists or does field exercises. And sometimes she even has a vlog. I like to show she has this vlog that's about how should I feel going into my first dissection. And, you know, you mentioned sort of earlier different perspectives. Um, there's nothing I can do about the fact that, you know, like I'm a 40 year old something white guy um, in front of my room. And so I feel like a lot of times when I go and present material, I'm always presenting it from my perspective. And one of the things I love about the brain scoop videos is that she will, she's a, di she's definitely a different face. She's definitely a different voice and she's a different perspective, but she engages and is so excited about the science that she's talking about her explaining questions that arise in in a dissection or asking questions in the field comes at it from such a different perspective than me and it's a different voice than me but it's something that will resonate with my students in a different way so um, they're no, they're pretty short they're pretty engaging there's like a million of them um, but i i think it's a great video series to to add a different perspective and a different voice into your classroom especially if you feel like you're you only hit sort of one note sometimes with the perspective of 
of what you bring in your classroom and what you show your students from that perspective. So uh, big fan of Emily. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Because I mean, that's one of the reasons we show them Paul's videos, right? Because mm -hmm. you want to hear from a different teacher, from a different perspective, somebody that explains things differently or views things differently. Yeah. And I think that's very important that if you pick someone outside of science or outside of teaching to, to give a completely different view. Yeah. And I would say, you know, she's, I, I would call her an expert science communicator. Um, and the difference between me using something that she has done and maybe something that like Bill Nye has done is that I don't feel like Bill Nye provides, while he's very entertaining, he doesn't provide a very different type of voice or experience than me. He's more, you know, maybe more animated and he's, you know, but he's just another, you know, to my student's perspective, old white guy. Um, <laughs> but so like to me, I feel like the the plurality of voices, like we just definitely need to have science communicators that provide a variety of perspectives. And um, as I, say, I think our videos are awesome and I, I find them super engaging there. But the other component is, am I helping to amplify voices that maybe my students will look at and hear their own voice maybe coming back at them? as opposed to somebody who's very different. Um, and so that's sort of the, the, one of the, one of the things that I have been coming aware of when I start to pick those extra resources, um, are these providing different perspectives than what I, I can deliver to my students. So you gave me a lot to think about today. <laughs> I have to say, <laughs> Good. and like, like I would like uh, to say about Brad Williamson, you're giving me homework. Yeah. <laughs> You're giving me homework. As opposed to when I leave Brad, I'm like, oh, man, I'm just so stupid. Uh, <laughs> I always feel like whenever he says something, it's like, okay, I have homework now. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely. <laughs> so, like you know, it, something to check out, something to think about, something to consider doing yeah. it with my kids. Um, that's homework. Yeah. If I ever if I ever feel like I'm getting too big for my britches or I feel like I'm too smart or I've learned too much, I'm just going to go find Brad. <laughs> have him ask have him ask me two questions and I'll be like, all right, that's right. I'm dumb. I don't know anything. Or, <laughs> um, yeah. He, Brad is Brad is awesome. And but man, humbling. He is. Yeah. He called me out. He called me out in St. Louis at uh, during a session. He he called me cold, called me during a question when I was in, like deep in thought. And I was like, I have no idea what to say to him. <laughs> I was like, I now know how my students feel. Uh, it was great. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> Unfortunately, I, I there's like, you know, I, I just knew it. I kind of had an idea, but I was so intimidated that like, even though I had in my mind the right idea to blurt out, I didn't say the right thing. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, it's great. All right. Well, thanks so much for, for joining me, Dusty. It's been a great conversation. Um, let me give my show credits. Uh, you can support this episode if you go to patreon.com slash lots. Uh, Patreons are invited into a Slack channel community with supporters of myself and John Darko and David Kanufke. Um, and so uh, I also post up my show notes there as well. So if that's another place to get audio and my show notes. Uh, music for this and every episode is provided by X Magicians and Jake Jenkins. Show notes can be also found at lifeoftheschool.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. Um, I didn't look for you um, on Twitter, Desi, because I know you're a Facebook person. I yes, I don't. I'm not active on Twitter. Not active um, on Twitter. I'm, I'm, I'm actually <laughs> a little against all these social networks. As I said, the only reason I still have Facebook is because of the groups yeah. I'm part of. Yeah. So. If I wasn't if, like 
really i only log on to facebook to go to the groups uh, <laughs> that I'm part of. I, I very rarely use facebook otherwise so all right well thank you again for joining me on this saturday and um i will talk to everybody soon thank you for having me and it was fun <laughs>